I guess this day last year was when the Pats were playing the Bills because I had tweeted my favorite football stat will forever be that the Pats are 2-0 and in games in which Bills fans throw dildos at Tom Brady on the field. <laughs> <laughs> that was still one of the funniest photos I've ever seen come out of a sporting event. Welcome back to the Girl at the Game podcast, the sports podcast by women for everyone in partnership with CLNS Media. We are your hosts, Gabrielle Starr, founder of Girl at the Game, and Alexandra Francisco of Nesson. I just realized I said my full name, so I have to say your full name too. <laughs> <laughs> and we are 50%, actually, no, we are 75% in the off season now because we are recording on Tuesday, September 29th. And the Celtics season, the Red Sox season, and the Bruins season have all come to either a tragic or merciful end, depending on the team. Our podcast, as always, is brought to you in partnership with the wonderful folks over at CLNS Media, and we have a jam-packed episode for you guys today, starting off with some end-of-season baseball talk, some hockey talk, and then later in the episode, we have got Jared Weiss, Celtics writer at The Athletic, and friend of Al, he actually lent her his microphone for our very first episode of this podcast. So it's kind of crazy come full circle moment for us with him. And he'll be on the show a little bit later to talk to us about the end of the Celtics season. I'm still not okay about it, but I'm excited that Jared's here to talk about it and the literal eulogy that he wrote for our sweet, sweet team in green. Al, how you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, we had all Monday to process the loss. So now it's about hope for the future, right? But hey, the Patriots are two and one. And some New Englanders will claim this team as their own, depending on how they feel about Connecticut. But the Connecticut Sun have game five tonight to determine whether they or the Las Vegas Aces advance to the WNBA finals. So we still have that stuff to hold on to. Yes, we do. And I'm very much looking forward to us getting more into WNBA content this year as well. There are some amazing guests that we're going to have on in the future to talk to us about the WNBA and just these incredible women who play for this league that unsurprisingly doesn't get the attention or respect that it deserves. That being said... I, I'm not going to act like I know all of you are keeping up with the WNBA, but I do just want to say the Connecticut Sun, for you New Englanders, made it to the WNBA Finals last year. And this year, despite a few opt-outs and some roster turnover, they started out their season 0-5 and somehow have made this just incredible turnaround and have now forced a Game 5 against the second-seeded Aces and the league MVP, Asia Wilson. So that game is tonight at 7.30. Tune in. It really is going to be great. And it's not like there's that many other sports going on tonight to watch. Alyssa Thomas has done incredible things. 
she literally dislocated her shoulder and had to have it popped back in and within yeah, 48 was hours was going off against the aces to lead the sun to a game three victories they're just so fun to watch and i'm really looking forward to a hopeful deeper run back to the finals so i want to pivot really quickly to men's basketball news that i just saw on twitter Mark Cuban told ESPN that he personally picked up Delonte West at a gas station in the Dallas area this week, and he has offered to pay for his treatment. This has been an ongoing situation with Delonte West for at least a year now. I think uh, yeah, a lot longer. Even longer, yeah. He, he was like diagnosed every- bipolar during his career, but he has been in the news at least since January, I know, but he keeps disappearing and then popping back up in different places. So hopefully he accepts Mark Cuban's offer and gets the help that he needs. He was a really special player and mental health is not something that anyone should be ashamed of and needing help is something that no one should be ashamed of. It's been in the sports conversation a lot lately with Obviously, the Dak Prescott situation that we talked about on the show and Kevin Love coming out with a second Players' Tribune article after his 2018 Players' Tribune article, all these kinds of things. So I really I just I just wanted to bring it up really quickly because Mark Cuban's great. And I'm really glad that somebody is trying to help Delonte West. He deserves to be able to live like a safe and healthy life, as do all people such an unfortunate situation. I know his friends and family have been trying to get him help for years and it just seems like every few months TMZ just will drop a photo of him taken like living on the actual streets and I know Doc Rivers has tried to do so much for him too. More NBA news, Doc Rivers has been let go by the Los Angeles Clippers after seven years. I'm sure we'll get more Were you surprised? Um, I was not. I wasn't surprised. It's been seven years. He's coached Blake Griffin, Chris Paul, and now Kawhi and Paul George. And the expectations for those teams were just so massive. And I mean, I feel for the guy. I don't like to talk about another man's job um, or whether or not they're deserving of it. But professional sports are professional sports. It's a very um, results now league. So I wasn't surprised. What did surprise me was Celtics fans on Twitter trying to say, bring him back to Boston. And I was like, okay, chill. Do you guys remember that he left us because he didn't want to coach the rebuild? And I also think it's funny that the Celtics during that quote unquote rebuild have had more success than Doc Rivers Clippers. But um, that's more what surprised me. But I mean, Doc Rivers, I think is a great coach. He's a great man. And I mean, You already saw the 76ers and the New Orleans Pelicans are chomping at the bit to get him out there. So Doc Rivers will not be unemployed much longer, I'm sure. But cut that shit out with bringing him back to Boston, you guys. When you talk about the sports results now thing, I I think it's just yet another very toxic trait of sports in the current era. I just feel like there's so much more turnover of higher up staff now than there was, you know, even 20 years ago, 
definitely 40 years ago, you know, you had managers who would manage a baseball team for 15 years and then they would die. Now it's like, you know, the Red Sox are on to their sixth manager since 2004. Right. And I mean, so we, we knew we that. knew we knew Renicky wasn't going to. Yeah, we can just pivot. But we knew Renicky was a one year manager. He was a placeholder. It's nothing against Ron Renicky. I went full in depth on this on yesterday's locks on Red Sox. So if you want to really get into the current Red Sox, listen to that. But Renicky came here to be Cora's bench coach. He didn't come here to be manager. He certainly didn't come here to like unseat Cora. He came here to be bench coach. And then, you know, shit hit the fan. They needed a manager who actually knew the players in like an emergency situation. And Ron Renicky was Renneke like basically was the, the only the choice. Job. Right. He has managerial experience. He knew all the players. The players wanted him to take over too. Yeah. They were very vocal about Renicky kind of taking over and all that chaos. Yeah. Look, you kind of want, as crazy as this sounds, you kind of want like the old mainstay of baseball. You know, you want a guy like Renicky or like Ron Gardenhire, you know, someone who's been around the game for a really long time. Like when things are in crisis, you're not looking for like a new young upstart because it's just not the time. And I mean, honestly, like, look where that got them with Cora. So all I would say to Ron Renicky is thank you, because he took on a job that he really did not want and didn't anticipate ever having with this team, I think. And the minute that he took it over, basically, things got like 85,000 times worse. Like, think about pandemic, then Sale has the Tommy John, Erod gets COVID, and then myocarditis and misses the season playing baseball in a pandemic, crazy protocols and social distancing teams around the league are getting sick. You know, you're just trying to protect your players while also playing actual baseball. He just had the deck stacked against him. And it only got more and more stacked against him as time went on. Anyone who is blaming him for the fact that this team went 24 and 36, the man did the best he could. It's a miracle they even won 24 games when you think about it. I agree with you 100%. He did not sign up for this shit, but I... No one signed up for this shit. (laughs) I really do feel for him because despite the mess that it was, I mean, like the bats didn't really perform early in the season. All the chaos surrounding this team, he really, I think, did get a lot out of the very small amount that he had. And his post-game press conference after Sunday's in the season finale was just so depressing because, I I mean, I'm soft as baby shit, but I think he really is a good guy. And I think once he was given the opportunity and took the job as manager, he said he really would like to come back next year, but as coach. But only if Cora comes back. Yeah, I don't want to be a bench coach again. I came here for Alex because of my relationship with him. and. I would be a bench coach maybe underneath him again. But I think it was really classy how after the loss, he said, I I want this job, but if it's not going to be me, like it really should be Cora. Alex Cora should be brought back. What's so let's take talk about that? it. Do you, think, do you think they will? Oh, my God. I mean, okay, so I really don't know. Like I, we've talked about this a lot. I feel like I'm very split on whether or not he should come back. I also just want to say, obviously, Chaim Bloom in the presser said that he was not going to talk about Cora without talking to Cora first. And also that like it just was not the time to talk about Cora. 
obviously he is purposefully being very opaque. Like he doesn't want speculation, but the Boston media is going to speculate anyway. You give them even a crumb, like you even say Cora's name out loud, which obviously he couldn't avoid doing that. There have been so it's many so conflicting reports. Too. There have been. And I, I think I, I think it was Chris Cotillo of Mass Live who had a really funny yes, tweet. Chris. Um, after <laughs> Heimblum's press conference, it, it was so cryptic talking about like, oh, like you said, um, I'm not going to talk about anything I haven't already said to Alex because I haven't spoken to Alex. I don't think they can speak to him until like November 4th, is it? Or whenever the Major League Baseball season ends and his suspension is officially lifted. Right. But Catillo tweeted, half the Red Sox beat writers think Cora's coming back and half the Red Sox beat writers think there's no chance. So yeah, I mean, that's where we're it's all ridiculous. I'm very conflicted because I saw, I don't know if it was on the Sox broadcast or if it was something else, but I think it was during the Red Sox game, maybe they were saying it would be a good PR move to bring him back. And I was like, well, it's a good PR move from a fan standpoint and a player standpoint. Obviously, Devers in particular has been very open about wanting Cora to come back. Fans have been clamoring for Cora to come back. but. When you talk about PR in terms of the actual reputation around the league with other teams, other opposing players, it's a bad PR move to bring him back because Cora will be shackled to a cheating reputation for a while. And as long as he is with the Red Sox, that reputation will apply to them too. And that sucks. But it's also something that the team is going to have to strongly consider. Like, is it worth it to not be trusted by other teams for years to come and have everything under question, everything you say, every time you win, people are going to be like, well, you're only winning because you're cheating again. That's just something that they're going to have to strongly consider. Like, is that worth it to them? I don't know if it is. I don't know if it should be. I go back and forth on it all the time because... You know, I do think that he was made kind of a scapegoat in Houston. I'm not saying he didn't participate, but I think that because he was already gone from the team, obviously it was a lot easier. It's like blaming a kid in another class for what's going on in your classroom because the teacher can only punish who's in their classroom. And so if it's not your fault, then you get less of a punishment. I don't know. Obviously, he was involved in Houston, but we already know that the Houston players cheated and that it was a player-driven scheme and that they approached Cora, not the other way around. So I think that he definitely played a part. But at the same time, you know, a good manager pushes his players to be better and doesn't let them cheat. It's the same thing with Hinch, where he's like, well, I tried to keep them from cheating but I, I couldn't do it. It's like, well, then you're not a good manager because you don't have control over your team. I get what you're saying, but I do want to say that, I mean, there's no way around it. Like, just because it's Boston, everything that's ever happened with the Patriots, even though the Red Sox were kind of seen to really not have any wrongdoing under Cora, there will still always be that reputation. Just going back to Spygate with the Patriots, right? But I do say, I think bringing Cora back would be a little different than if a guy like A.J. Hinch was the Red Sox manager and got suspended because Alex Cora does not make excuses. You know what I mean? He's one of the most transparent managers I've really ever seen. He holds himself accountable. He holds his players accountable. 
and he's not afraid to like he doesn't beat around the bush like if he fucks something up he's the first to tell you in the post game so I think that if the Red Sox were to bring him back and they just had Cora roll him out in front of the press on day one and have him just apologize open up about this take accountability for it like you know he will I really think they could squash it early and just nip it in the bud right away and I mean people fans of other teams are always going to have that hate for Boston so the reputation is going to be there regardless especially because they were popped for cheating in 2017 too with the Apple Watch thing so it's not like it was germane to Cora but at the same time I just I think that Alex Cora deserves another chance to manage in the major leagues. I just don't know if it should be with Boston. Even though baseball has broken me a million ways over the last few years, and, you know, just like being a Red Sox fan since birth, part of me is still that very idealistic, not naive because I know it's crazy, but idealistic, kind of utopian, hopeful, Disney-esque way of thinking of baseball should be honorable and there shouldn't be cheating involved. And I don't want our favorite team to have to deal with these things. And I mean, this goes for the whole league. I want the whole league to play honorably, but especially my favorite team. It's like it hurts. It hurt last winter when that stuff came out. It sucked. Like it was embarrassing and frustrating and fans of other teams being like assholes about it. I'm like, do you think this is fun for Red Sox fans? Do you think it feels good to find out that your favorite team may have cheated? Like we have no control over what this team does. Like I was getting so much crap on social media for something that had literally nothing to do with me other than the fact that it's my favorite team. Don't you love that? It's not even just identity politics anymore. It's identity sports How is this somehow my fault? What are you yeah. trying to accomplish here? Like you're trying to make me feel worse than my team already. Like you can't hurt me. I'm a Red Sox fan. Shut up. Like, <laughs> it's just the whole thing. But before we well, bring on Jared, I want to know who you're rooting for in the postseason because obviously our Red Sox are not in it, unsurprisingly. I have my National League team. I have my American League team. I want to know who you're rooting for though. Um, The Brewers. I think they're just so fun. Okay. They did DFA so, Brock Holt, though, so they questionable did, judgment but there. I, I, lo- I love Yelich. I kind of liked, I kind of, I didn't adopt them, but I started watching them a lot more with Yelich. And then once Brock went there, I was like, oh, hell yeah. So even that Brock is gone, I'm not ready to give up on him yet. I'm certainly not going to root for them. I'm going to just watch the MLB playoffs as an unbiased reporter, but I will tune into probably their games more often than others. Perfect time to talk about our wonderful sponsor, Bet Online, because they give you the opportunity to bet on or against all of your favorite teams, all of your favorite sports. They are our exclusive wagering partner. We like them a lot. You can bet on football, football's back, Major League Baseball's in full swing, headed to the postseason. There's no shortage of ways to get in on the action for any and all of your favorite teams with Bet Online. Uh, they have all the odds, futures, props for you to bet on. When sports return this summer, Bet Online sat down with Eddie George of the NFL, Robert Ori, seven time NBA champ, and former Major League Baseball player Harold Reynolds to get their opinion on what it would be like playing without fans and what they've called fandemic. So we're living that right now. 
Yeah, check out betonline.ag today. Uh, they've got all the odds and up-to-date sports news for all your favorite teams, favorite athletes. And don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all of their welcome back to sports bonuses. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Okay, so do you, do you have a, an American League team too, or are you just kind of watching the Brewers? Let me think about that. Um, the Blue Jays okay. are my American I mean, League team. I would definitely, I think, based on my experiences in the bleachers of Fenway Park, I would say they have my favorite fan base. But I don't know if I can, like, really root for another AL East team, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's kind of like, I, for starters, I'd rather have them than the Yankees, obviously, and even the Rays. I guess it's like, I guess it's like kind of rooting for, like, the Bills to do well, even though they're <laughs> in the AFC. <laughs> Perfect anniversary of that tweet I was telling you about. Yeah, I got the Blue Jays and the Marlins, partially okay. because they're two of my favorite teams to follow on Twitter because their social content is so good, but also because I have friends down in Florida who are Marlins people. My Nickelodeon podcast co-host, Jeremy Taché, who's also a very good friend of mine, he's like a lifelong Miami sports fan. We literally did not talk during the ECF. We made a deal. We were like, we're not going to be able to be nice to each other. So we're just not going to talk. <laughs> we didn't even record our podcast last week because we were like, we just, it won't work. The only thing I worry about with a Floridian team making it is they cannot be trusted to safely and responsibly <sighs> celebrate. No, they cannot. I mean, before we get to Jared, we'll pivot from baseball really quick to say um, a Stanley Cup champion was crowned last night. <laughs> The Tampa Bay Lightning and won no the one... Cup over the Dallas Stars. Not many people cared except for Tampa Bay fans. I mean, it's also tough with Game 6 going up against Monday Night Football when it's the Chiefs and the Ravens. Like, who wasn't tuning yeah, into that? Bad scheduling but on that. They were, I mean, like, congrats to the Tampa Bay Lightning. They absolutely deserved it skated circles around the Boston Bruins who had an incredible season in their own right but just couldn't get it done when they got to the bubble but I mean you saw their celebration with Tampa Bay they were going wild oh not a mask in sight it was like a mosh pit I counted literally one mask in that entire video if you don't know what I'm talking about um I tweeted it out last night it's like literally the crowd is thousands of people it looks like they're at like a Coachella concert. Um, they've got, you know, lights and all kinds of stuff. They're screaming, jumping, one guy's shirtless for some reason. But what you don't see is masks. And at this point, I'm like, you know what? Just grab a giant pair of scissors, start cutting that state off of this country because truly they will be the death of all of us. Oh, yeah. I've been on that wave. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> <laughs> Cartoon. The guy's like, <clears throat> <laughs> that's what I was going for. <laughs> we now welcome on Jared Weiss, Celtics beat writer at The Athletic. And before we really get into this, I should tell you listeners that our first episode of the Girl at the Game podcast was brought to you literally by Jared Weiss because my microphone had not yet come in when we interviewed Jessica Mendoza. And obviously, I needed prime audio quality for that so jared came over brought his mic set me up in my kitchen and we were good to go so thank you jared and welcome on to the girls again podcast 
It's funny. I think that was like the first time I saw a friend outside of a computer screen of all of quarantine. <laughs> so that was that was a very exciting moment of 2020 for me. Literally, you were one of my first bubble people. I am a bubble boy. That is very true. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we have you on to talk about the Boston Celtics of the year of our Lord 2020 RIP. <laughs> so let's get right into it. My first question that I want to ask you is, it seemed like Boston constantly gave up these leads down the stretch. At least one or two guys failed to light up the scoreboard like we know they're capable of in every loss. And then you have guys like Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero, everything they did to secure the series for Miami. So in your opinion, did the Heat win the series or did the Celtics lose it? Oh, the cl- The classic talk show radio opener uh the the, the, the heat won the series like come on the heat were unbelievable um frankly i think the way that the celtics played probably would have won them the series against most opponents but the heat are just so perfectly well run they're i mean eric spolstra is i've been saying the best coach in the nba for three weeks now which is an incredibly long time in hot takesville and they execute these really, really complicated systems that he devises on offense and then also take a very simple system on defense in the 2-3 zone that hasn't really worked at this level in a long, long time in the NBA, and he makes it almost impossible to, to break through. And the Celtics, over the course of that entire series, they figured out how to attack a 2-3 zone, which is stuff that even I used to do back in my rec league days as a middle schooler which was the peak of my basketball career, of course. And he found a way to, like, even when the Celtics tried to find a way, he would switch it up just enough that Miami still had the edge. And Miami just outcompeted, they outshot, they kind of did everything that a team needs to do to overcome an opponent that has a ton of talent like the Celtics do. So I give all the credit to Miami. They definitely would have ended up in the finals if they hadn't had to play Miami. But I mean, that's how that's how it goes. It was just oh, it's so frustrating. I mean, you watch them give up like a 17 point lead in game two, even that lead that they had in the last game for about 20 seconds. Moments like that, I kind of felt like they were definitely game two. I felt like they were kind of gift wrapping that game for the heat. I mean, that was like, that was what Al and I called the Kemba Walker redemption game. Like they should have won game two, but I mean, in general, I do think the heat outplayed them or at the very least outmaneuvered them. It's funny you say that because game one was the game where Tatum literally goes in to dunk the ball to tie it at the very end. And then Adebayo rejects them. So you could even, I think most people will point to that as the one that they let slip away. But I think you're right. You're absolutely right that game two was the one where they really were in control of that one. And even though it wasn't quite as close of a finish, that was the one where it felt like they, they there was no way that they possibly could have lose that game. Uh, and they still somehow managed to do so. And that's why game three's win, I guess, was somewhat reassuring because it was, it was a sign that, hey, I guess if they do get a 22-point lead, that's enough for them to hold on. What do you think led to all these breakdowns? in the fourth quarter and down the stretch, like game after game? So there's no good answer for this because I do think you could point to just a youthful, I guess, naivety of Jason Tatum to a degree 
Marcus Smart, uh, his penchant for jacking up crap at the end of games, stuff like that. Um, but it was definitely more than just like, oh, they're a little bit younger for their core leaders, so that's why they were letting go of the rope. There was definitely a bit of that. Miami started to really execute very well against Boston's defense in those games late where the Celtics, they were getting a lot of their points by getting steals and getting rebounds and then attacking on the fast break or getting into what we call early offense, which is you bring the ball down and then you set a screen as soon as the ball crosses the line. You start getting into your actions really quickly as opposed to a lot of what the Celtics were doing against the zone, which was they would bring the ball down and then they would swing the ball over to like one elbow and then they would stand there with the ball above their head and they would kind of just slowly try to chip away. And when you let Miami get their feet set on defense, that's when you're really in trouble. You want to attack them while they're backpedaling. You know, you want to, in, in basketball in general, you want to attack a defense before it gets set, right? So the Celtics just kind of would lose that edge late in games. And then Miami would start getting steals because Jimmy Butler would start capitalizing on those moments of kind of stasis. And before you know it, Miami, they get a couple steals, they hit a couple threes, and a 12-point lead evaporates in the blink of an eye, and Celtics just weren't even ready for that. They didn't, they didn't respond quickly enough. So speaking of threes, I feel like we saw this almost every game of the series, but we definitely saw it down the stretch in game six. The Celtics missed so many threes. It just felt like they couldn't get one off to save their lives, and they just weren't pivoting to trying to you know, get points any other way. What is your take on that? I mean, because it, it seems to me, just like from the eye test, if you're not making your threes, like stop trying to, I'm sorry, I'm going to make another baseball reference, but only because they made <laughs> this exact reference during the game on the broadcast. They said, stop trying to hit home runs, just try to get base hits. I mean, that's pretty much what it was. If you're not making your threes, we saw this from Kemba, we saw this from Tatum, you have to pivot. And it just feels like every single game of this series, pretty much, there were moments where they would get locked in on trying to get threes just because they were trying to bridge the gap to close the score discrepancy. And they just couldn't pivot to another offensive game plan. What's your take on that? I think there's a lot of truth to that. And Brad Stevens would be very appreciative of the baseball references, of course. But I'm a huge proponent of launching as many threes as possible. The math does tend to check out where if you're able to get up over 43 point attempts in a game, you generally, it generally increases your odds of winning. And so the Celtics got up to, I think, 46 in game six. And they had, I want to say it was around 13 or so more three point attempts in Miami. But Miami shot like 58% from the field of that game. Miami was just pretty much perfect there. I mean, there were so many shots at the end where. Robinson was hitting contested shots. Adebayo was hitting contested shots. Tyler Hero is driving through Marcus Smart. I mean, there was just stuff where Miami just hit some unbelievable plays, and you're you see these you see these things happening, and you're like, crap, this is over for the Celtics. There's they they can't even get stops when they're getting stops, so there's just no chance for them. So, you know, the Celtics having a mediocre shooting night, compensating for that by taking as many threes as they can, is I think the right approach. But there's a difference between trying to set up three-pointers as much as possible with with the way you run your offense and then doing the Marcus Smart thing where you come down the floor, the ball gets swung to you, and you just take a three with a guy in your face with 17 seconds left on the shot clock. Those are 
those are the ones that really hurt you. And that was clearly something that kind of plagued them throughout the series. Yeah, that's something I would have liked to see just better shot selection. I mean, I feel like that's always Marcus Smart's tripe. And he kind of like started to shake that through the playoffs or that reputation. But in game six, I really would have liked to see them try to run the offense more through Jalen as opposed to Smart pulling up for all those shots. You're so right. And it's so frustrating because Jalen has just kind of proven every single time that they've given him the opportunity that he's so damn good. And yet most of his offense came from getting steals and having to go score himself or running out on fast breaks or just standing in the corner and having the three, three ball swung to him. They didn't put him in like the heart of the play to actually target him as a scorer nearly enough. And it was really frustrating, especially early in the games. A lot of the time it would be the fourth quarter comes around. He's like, all right, well, I've only touched the ball like 10 times so far this game. I got to start really taking over. But he's so good that they need him to be in that kind of mode the entire game. And so one of the big things that I wrote about was after the series was over was just how Stevens needs to find a way to get Brown more involved in the offense from the jump in the playoffs. I think they did a good job with it in the regular season. But when they got to the playoffs, it really kind of waned as the off as the defenses that they were facing became way more intense. We saw Jalen so many times throughout the playoffs just kind of flip a switch and be able to take over the game. And he hit those two threes down the stretch against the Heat. And you, I had that like glimmer of hope like he was going to do it. And then it just didn't happen. And I just, for the life of me, can't understand why. I mean, if I understood why, I probably would uh, have a better job somewhere, right? So, um, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, you might be uh, coaching the Celtics, right? I mean, I know a lot of fans <laughs> were calling for Brad Stevens' job after that series. Oh, my God. That was so ridiculous. Like, the, you're in the conference finals and you lost in a tight series. You don't, fi- you don't fire your coach when that happens. You fire your coach when you lose in the second round like the Clippers did. Um, but right. no, I, I, I thought that was ridiculous. Brad Stevens did a great job. Oh. and. You know, he got out coached by the best coach in the NBA. It's not a shocker. Yeah. So, I mean, all that being said, do you think the Celtics overachieved this year or underachieved? Because, I mean, I, I certainly didn't expect a trip to the Eastern Conference Finals to be a lock. I would say from the beginning of the year's expectations, they certainly overachieved. I mean, they said this was going to be a bridge year to contending next season, and they almost won the title this year. So, yeah, this was definitely an overachievement from the grand scheme of things, but from the standard that they set from, I guess, once they got to the bubble and they showed that they really are for real, I would say it was a, an underachievement. It was a disappointment. I mean, they they showed that they had the talent. They showed even when, when Hayward went down that they could pull it off. And Having Hayward back and, you know, someone, he was clearly not 100%. He was very far from it. You know, he rushed back to try to be there for the team, and he, he can only deliver so much. But it was, at least initially, it was helpful to have him back out there. But they, um, I, I think that it's fair to feel like they underachieved because who cares what your expectations were at the beginning? You adjust your expectations, and then you have to hold that standard up. Yeah. And speaking about Gordon Hayward, you know, he went down in the first game against the Sixers and there was so much concern about filling his role. 
but they did it. And then they got by Philly and Toronto. So who in your mind really rose to the occasion there and impressed you the most over that stretch without Hayward? Ooh, that's an interesting question. I mean, <laughs> smart, smart deserves credit, right? Cause I think smart, he was, he showed that he was having a good offensive season before he Hayward went down. Mind. Yeah. He shot out of his mind in that Toronto series. The, the shooting way, you know, the shooting eventually kind of fell off and that's, that that definitely is a concern for figuring out if this offensive leap that he made is something that's going to be permanent. I think it'll be fairly permanent because I think he showed that one of the things he did really well is he became very good at driving the ball again. He actually kind of turned into the Marcus Smart that he was back at Oklahoma State for the first time after like seven years in the NBA somehow, or is it six years at this point? But so he, I think, probably deserves the leap credit but then there's obviously Tatum putting up Kobe Bryant numbers as a 22-year-old. Jalen, who I just thought was fantastic, and they just hadn't found a way to maximize his value. All three of those guys made, you know, made huge leaps in this playoff run. But I'll give Smart the credit just because he evolved in a way that was way beyond what those guys did when it went from the regular season role to the playoff role. So speaking about Jalen and Jason's jump, how impressive was it for you to cover both of them day in and day out when they're making such huge leaps in their game? I mean, are there any specific key moments throughout the season where you realize, like, holy cow, these two are different players this year? I would say when Jason had that pull-up three against Portland's during their road trip in, I think it was February, and it was, he was, he, I think he was like, he squared somebody up from 30 feet out. And you're thinking, oh, maybe he's going to drive here. He seems pretty energetic. Then he just shot it from 30 feet out and he swished it. And it was just so, it was so ridiculous. I was, I was just like, I've never seen the guy have this kind of swag before. This is completely new. Yeah. And that, and, and I feel like that going. topped off just the craziest month for him or got him going on just an it insane was. month where people were like, who the hell is this dude? Like really put him on the map in the NBA if he wasn't already. He started the season. I remember writing a story in, I want to say, November, where the story was about how he was finally not taking mid-range jumpers. And then December, the story was, oh, he's finally getting to the line. He's finally drawing fouls, and he's hitting. He's actually hitting some of these finger rolls at the rim. And then two months later, he's averaging like 30 points a game, and he's people are talking about him as an MVP candidate. I've never seen anyone make a leap like that in that kind of time period. We see guys make a leap like he did from having kind of a mediocre or disappointing season the year before to playing at an all-star level this year. But we've never seen any anyone kind of change who they are completely every single month over the course of the year. And then he got even better when he got to the bubble. Like he wasn't really much of a playmaker, even as recently as February gets to the bubble and now he's averaging five assists a game. It's, it's absolutely incredible. We, we haven't really seen anybody evolve in the way that we've seen him evolve over the course of a single year. Yeah. Even in game six, he had that really slow start, obviously, but um, I thought it was interesting how people were like, Oh, is Tatum going to show up? Is Tatum going to show up? And I look at the box score and he already has six assists and five rebounds. And I'm like, what game are you guys watching? Like his shots aren't falling right now, but look at what he's doing as a playmaker. <laughs> yeah. That's what makes you a superstar. Is it's the games where 
your shot's not falling, and so you end up with assists or you have a bunch of big defensive plays. I mean, the guy gets it done on both ends every single night. And, I mean, shit, look at game five, right, where he had zero points in the first half and then had, was it 27 in the second half? Or, <laughs> right. Yeah, finished, I think he finished with 28 points. He finished with 28 points, and he had no points at halftime. Think about how crazy that is. If he had the same performance in the first half, he would have had 56 points. He would have been close to the NBA record that Michael Jordan has for points, which he said against the Celtics at 61. It is so – it is just – the guy is unbelievable. The guy is already a superstar. It's very, very clear. And it's very clear that he has some major weaknesses that work out of his game. He was he shot terribly in the clutch. He had all those points, and he still was shooting like 25% in clutch situations. He was leaving points on the table. He was making mistakes offensively. He was getting too trigger happy. There's so many ways that he could improve still that make you think he's going to turn into an MVP. Totally overshadowing kind of the jump Jalen's also making simultaneously. Yeah, Jalen would be getting all the accolades if he was on every other team in the NBA pretty much. Uh, And you know what? He does not seem to have too much of a problem of the whole Tatum shadow thing because, well, one, he's getting paid, although obviously he's not getting paid the max and he would clearly be getting the max if he hadn't signed that extension back then. Uh, But he's in a situation that really plays to his strengths. And by playing next to Tatum, it does cover up some of his weaknesses. You know, Tatum's such a great on-ball scorer, and Jalen, I think, actually is better off being off-ball and getting fed the ball on the move. So he's in a pretty ideal partnership, and he doesn't seem like the kind of guy that cares too much about people talking about how he's the best young player and all that kind of stuff. Like He, he seems to be caring mostly about winning and having his platform, and he's getting both of those. Yeah, and I mean, you talk about players who are kind of content I don't want to say to give somebody else the spotlight but they definitely aren't trying to claim all the spotlight for themselves let's talk about Kemba Walker for a little bit because he obviously even though he definitely struggled a lot during this playoff run he did make a huge difference on this team throughout the season and one of the things that he is really good at is making his teammates look good he said after the loss that this team still has growing to do, which is obvious, um, but that the core is going to be together for a while. Do you see this core group ever being able to get to the finals to be a team like the Lakers in terms of talent? And what do you see Kemba doing to improve his performance in these kind of very important games? I mean, if you think back to his UConn days, he was the guy that was getting those clutch shots, you know, buzzer beaters, step back, cardiac Kemba, like all of those iconic Kemba moments. But he really did struggle a lot during the playoff run. What do you see him kind of working on? That's a great question because it actually, this might, this question might be the difference between whether they actually become a finals team or not. Um, I, I think Jalen and Jason are already pretty much performing at the level that they need to to put them into the finals. And so it's a matter of what can they get out of their third all-star. And it's really tricky judging, I guess, coming up with a final assessment of how did Kemba do. And I have to because I'm supposed to do a report card after this podcast is over. we got to figure this out right now. we got to get a grade together. And 
we, as long we as we saw... get bylines on there on the athletic. Oh sure, oh, of course, <laughs> obviously, that's a guarantee. Um, but Kemba, he did hit those shots. Like those shots are talking about that crossover step back from the free throw line, that seventeen footer step back. That's a signature shot. He took that shot like three or four times in the Toronto series, and I think he hit almost all of them. You're right. It was he just... came up when it mattered, even if he was slow all game. Like, he did have those moments at the end where it was like, hell yeah. Obviously, yeah, definitely remember that from Toronto. Him. Yeah, exactly. And you know, don't forget that Toronto series, he hit the game winner for game three that then Ananobi hit another game winner. We had two game winners in that game, which never yeah. happens. <laughs> uh, that was insane. And then game six, he got to the rack and put up the same finger roll and then Ananobi fouled him and they didn't call the call. And then the NBA admitted the next day in their L2M report, which I'm sure no one has any oh, idea what so that means. Um, but so they admitted that the call was missed and he should have gotten a foul and he would have hit the free throws and that would have given them the lead with like four seconds left. So they probably would have won that game there. So he definitely got it done in the end against Toronto, even though he struggled so much. And then Miami, it was different because they were playing zone because Bam Adebayo was underneath the rim. He just did not get those same kind of looks. And we did see kind of towards the end of the series, he was finally finding his rhythm. The big thing he was missing is he's his best play is very simple he gets a ball screen from Daniel Tice. He goes over the screen and then he hops right into a three pointer. And he does it in this little window where if you're a defense offending a pick and roll, you're just the big man is sitting underneath and he's not quite in reach of the point guard. And then the guy that's covering the point guard and Kemba, the guy's covering Kemba in this instance, is still getting through that screen. And there's this little window of opening where Kemba's amazing at launching these pull-up three-pointers. He's one of the best in the game at it. And he just never found comfort in that shot. And when he couldn't hit that shot, it cut down on his effectiveness significantly. And so when he's going up against the zone, he's not able to create that kind of separation that usually allows him to get through the trees. That usually allows him to find space around the perimeter to pull up for shots. So the matchup against Miami was just like the worst matchup imaginable for his style of play. And thank God they are Marcus smart because, because Marcus smart is a really big point guard. You know, he's like four inches bigger and like 50 pounds heavier probably than Kemba. He was really effective of actually driving through that zone and breaking it up and then being a playmaker from there. So him and Kemba complemented each other very nicely in the Miami series while Kemba had the ball mostly in the Toronto series and smart was mostly being a shooter. And so I think they need to figure out that dichotomy a little bit better come, you know, playoff time next year where they're probably going to see even more zone defenses like the ones that Miami threw out there. And Kemba needs to figure out a way that he can be effective against the zone. And I'm, it might just be a matter that they change the way that they give him screens so he still is able to get three-point opportunities and they just don't come the way that they usually do. So this is not a jab at my dear co-host, uh, but she is oh, the – this is like our – no, this is just this is our long running joke is that Al is like the biggest Kyrie apologist and I am like a diehard Kemba fan. So the question is, do you think the Celtics are in the Eastern Conference finals this year if Kyrie is still on the team instead of Kemba? I love Kemba. Yeah, it's not too, that she doesn't love I Kemba. I know that he's a, <laughs> he know, I know he's a better fit than Kyrie, but I 
yeah, I have a soft spot for Kyrie. Al, you know the rules. You can't love both Kemba and Kyrie. You have to hate one no, we... and love the other. <laughs> well, this is how Boston sports stake. works. Burn me at the stake, then, Bostonians. Okay. Oh, God. I didn't realize um, you were in wood. Yeah, just in time for Halloween. All season long, one of the biggest storylines has been kind of the Kemba difference, just in terms of the team as a cohesive unit, the way that he has uplifted his teammates and just like makes them look so good. And he's so modest. And he came here to kind of really be a team player. And we know that Kyrie did not come here to be a team player. Like he came here so that he could be a LeBron type on a different team instead of being in LeBron's shadow. Are the Celtics even in the playoffs with Kyrie still on the team? <laughs> are they, are they, are they in the, are they in the Eastern <laughs> <All right>. Finals? <laughs> Do they even exist if Kyrie is on this team? Um, yeah, and the Boston though, Celtics like, completely Ky- collapsed. The Celtics <laughs> Kyrie, Kyrie was not that bad. to the G League. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, well, Fulham get called up. But so, you know, Kyrie was not that bad. Come on. It was Kyrie created this, I guess he kind of lowered their floor and raised their ceiling, I guess would be the way to put it. While Kemba gives them a little more narrow of a range of outcomes, but he raises their floor significantly. And, you know, the big difference is what you're saying was that Kyrie came here and he said, I'm going to lead these guys and show these guys how to win a championship. And that did not go well. And Kemba came here and he said, I want to learn from these guys how to win a championship. I want to do what I do and be part of a great winning culture with a great coach because this was completely new for him. And, yeah, we definitely saw that Kyrie probably would have fared better in the playoffs than Kemba did. Um, but I mean, we also saw last year Kyrie, like he went, he went completely rogue. Like it was a straight up mutiny basically in that Milwaukee series and he <laughs> performs way worse than what Kemba was doing. Like just cause he was able to get some better shots off. Doesn't mean he wasn't significantly worse than what Kemba's doing. Kemba for, for all the defensive issues with him, the dude at least is working his ass off. He's still trying as hard as humanly possible. He's he's still generally is not making a lot of mistakes in this in the uh, in the scheme while Kyrie was just blowing up the scheme. And so I don't think there's any way that they would have survived like Ananobi hitting that three in game three against Toronto that would have started a Fisher. I don't think they would have come back the way that they almost did against Miami, you know, things like that. Um, I don't think they would have had that kind of ability to rally. I don't think they would have had the ability to have that fight that they had after game two against Miami and be able to come out stronger from that. So I, I don't think, I do think that Kemba proved to be a better fit at the end of the day when accounting for the fact that he did struggle to find his offensive game in the playoffs because of just everything that they built over the course of the year. It was like, you know, there was, there was never any tension over the course of the year. There was harmony. And that was really hard to achieve when you have, you had two literal all-stars, Jalen Brown, who was an all-star by the end of the season, and Gordon Hayward, who was performing at a near all-star level pretty much the entire year. That balance worked because Kemba, not only did he not have an ego that got in the way, he embraced seeing his teammates thrive. He was waiting for this moment his whole career to be on a team where he didn't have to be the best player every single night. And he thrived off of that. And so I do think give them more time to work together next season. 
and they'll be able to find a harmony that could work even better, especially with if they're if they're healthy. Like I think I think it was pretty clear with how bad Hayward played when he came back, and then compare that to how good they were playing with him beforehand. Like if this team is healthy during the playoffs, they are they are probably the title favorite with the way that Tatum and Brown are playing at this point. Totally, it really sucked to see Gordon going from playing really his best basketball as a Celtic here in the bubble to just another injury like that on his ankle. But before we kind of put this season to rest and pivot to looking forward to the off season, I want to talk to you about what I think is like one of the biggest travesties of the playoffs. I know you've been fighting the good fight, but the war on Tice that's been waged, (laughs) they really found issues when he was in foul trouble, especially with, Adebayo attacking and it seemed like he was kind of playing more timidly when he was in foul trouble do you think that that overshadowed how he how well he played this year oh um I mean, he had a great year we kind of knew there would be a ceiling and he would hit his head on that ceiling at some point and it turns out he hit that head trying to go defend an alley-oop to bam Adebayo over and over and over again so yeah, that was. It, it's funny because there was an athletic story where some scout told, I think it was Sam Amick, that they felt that the matchup between Tice and Adebayo was a wash coming into the series, and that did not turn out to be true. Uh, Bam Adebayo turned into a superstar in the series, while Tice got exposed as being a great value center for the five million that they're paying him, and he's probably worth about ten million. You know, he's while Bam is clearly playing at a max level, uh, Tice is really good at a bunch of things, and Bam is really good at exposing the things that he's not good at. And that just showed really clearly, and the Celtics never had a consistent answer for it. I think that Steven should have played Rob Williams a lot more in this series because Rob Williams showed for all the mistakes that he makes. He is able to take away Bam with his rolling and stuff like that, and he is able to affect the rim in a way that Tice couldn't quite do it. Um, And a big part of this was that the way that they used Tice in the defensive scheme uh, for most of the season, where Tice was super effective and was one of the best defenders at his position in the league, they didn't really get to do that much against Miami because of the way that Miami's offense is designed. Uh, Miami just was such a bad matchup for them. They were a terrible matchup for Milwaukee, and they humiliated Milwaukee. At least the Celtics looked better than Milwaukee did against Miami. You know, Milwaukee was, I thought they were the clear title favorites for most of the season. So this Miami team was pretty remarkable, and I wouldn't think I wouldn't come away from the series thinking that Tice is not a good center, but I would come away from it thinking Tice is only going to get you so far, and if you want to get past a team like Miami, you're going to need a better solution at center. Yeah, I agree, and it was weird to see Time Lord not get more minutes, and then also it seemed like Brad was kind of just going trial and error with a throw camper and see what happens. Let's get Grant Williams some time too and see how it goes but I mean so all this being said do you see any like really drastic changes coming for the Celtics this offseason I mean like we mentioned they seem to have just such amazing chemistry together this core group so what do you think is like the most important upgrade they need to make is it the front court is it getting more offense off the bench to roll with smart I don't think they have to necessarily replace the center position and, you know, like I said before, I just I think that this team fully healthy 
would would have a great chance at winning it. So I, I think they should just basically roll it back again. But there is, I think Gordon Hayward is a major thing they have to address, which is that he's probably going to opt into the final year of his deal. And Gordon had a great season, and then he got hurt, and they couldn't capitalize on it in the playoffs. And so at this point, you know, you you have a bit of a concern of can we count on him in his final season to be healthy? And you know what? If he gives you what he gave you this year and he's healthy for the playoffs, it's worth the risk of losing him at the end of the contract and not getting any value out of it. But if you're concerned that that's not going to happen, there are some potential trades out there that could be really valuable. And this offseason, because there's such little cap space around the NBA, there's probably going to be a lot of trades. Teams are going to want to mix things up. Players are going to want to move, and they're not going to have cap space available to them, or they're not free agents yet. This is where I set up the Oladipo part of the conversation. But, you know, Gordon <laughs> Hayward could be moved. It's very possible. And I don't think that there's I, – I wrote that I don't think there's an impetus to trade him. I think that he's very well liked, and I do think he's willing – to you know, to take the role that he has, which is certainly a limited role compared to what he can have in other places. I think he's willing to do that so that he could try to win a championship here. And I don't just I don't see the I don't see any reason to be like we need to cash in on whatever spare parts we can get out of this Hayward asset before he's gone. That's generally not been the way the Celtics operate. We just saw it with Terry Rozier last year, where. There was everybody was saying you got to trade Rogier now before he's gone because you need to get value out of him because we know we're not going to keep him. And then they ended up moving him for Kemba. So, you know, there's probably other ways that they could have made that deal happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, you can look at that and say these guys, when they become free agents, there's generally a way that you can use them in a sign and trade to bring something back of some value. And so I'm sure that's a possibility for Hayward for sure. You mentioned Oladipo. You reported that he and Miles Turner both potentially want out of Indiana. What do you think it would take to get those guys here? And if not them, if you're Danny Ainge, who would you move and who's a player you could see them bringing in and being a great fit? Because like you said, and like we've been saying all season, one of the biggest things this team has is chemistry. They work really well together. They are so I think one of the reasons that they have been so fun, such a joy to watch is because they have like a genuine bond. Sure. And obviously we know that the wrong kind of player can totally throw off that team chemistry. So if you're Danny, who do you think is an actual great fit? You know, in a perfect world, who would you get who would both be actually like as a player a good fit, but also as, you know, a person for this specific team chemistry. Yeah. You know, the thing is Oladipo isn't really an ideal fit from that perspective. Oladipo's main thing is that he wants to be in a situation where he can really capitalize his financial futures and see his hitting free agency in the near future. Um, and I think he wants to be somewhere where he can be a featured player of the offense. And if he comes to Boston, his offensive role is going to be even more limited. So, I don't know if he makes sense from that perspective, but if you're looking to get good value replacement for Gordon Hayward, Victor Oladipo would be a great target for it. Um, but Oladipo's also been dealing with significant injury challenges too, 
And actually, Hayward is relatively more reliable from a health standpoint than Oladipo is. So this would not be necessarily a safe move, but it could be, you know, potential avenue to at least explore. Miles Turner, I think, would be great. Um, There's some people that aren't that aren't fans of Miles Turner, and I, I get that, but he's a really great defensive center who has a pick and pop game that can, you know, that showed a couple years ago and then kind of disappeared last year, but I'm pretty confident it was there. Uh, he's a great rim roller and he's 24. And like, that's, he's so young that he has so far to go and he's clearly worth it if they can manage to make a swap like Hayward for Turner plus some more filler, like potentially Oladipo. So that's certainly one deal worth exploring. The Celtics would need to add in a lot more on their end. So the tricky part probably comes into, can the Celtics put together enough to make that deal work? Like I would not want to put Marcus Smart in that deal as well. I think financially you'd have to find something cheaper anyway. So maybe Romeo Langford, Time Lord, and a couple draft picks to make it happen. But I'd imagine Indiana will have some better offers from around the league. So then when it comes to other players, like you're asking, I actually don't really have anyone off the top of my head right now, and I probably should figure some people out. But I think that, especially with Time Lord showing that he has starting potential in a year or two, I wouldn't rush to find a new long-term solution at center. I think that the the real thing they need to find is just more offensive help off the bench. Like that's That's what's really hurting them, is that when they have to dig into their bench, they have all these guys that just don't, they they just like, they don't have the ball skills to be reliable and they can't shoot enough that you're comfortable with your offensive system. And like, they just need to have somebody out there that they can count on to just be a major contributor, just to have a bench player that could come into the game and the, and the team is like, uh-oh, we got to guard that guy. The way, like, Tyler Hero was for for uh, Miami. Like, Tyler Hero would come in the game, and he would just kind of completely reshape the game. They need a good sixth man, and they probably need another good seventh and eighth man on top of that. So I think it's that kind of depth that they really need to look for. Now, looking ahead at the East, it's going to be a little different than it was this year. I mean, who knows what will come of the Bucks? and Giannis. The Sixers are probably just perpetually a dumpster fire as <laughs> no matter who they add. But I mean, you have to work in the next next season and the threat of Kyrie and KD playing together. How do you think they'll gel as a team and how the Celtics will match up against a team like that? I mean, they'll match up pretty well considering that they have the defenders that that are good you know for that matchup Marcus is obviously a good matchup for Kyrie Kemba can handle minutes on him um who knows if Brad Wanamaker is still going to be here next year but you know he wouldn't be a bad matchup there and then for wings you got Tatum and Jalen Brown who who are both very good matchups against KD so you know they match up they match up pretty well against those guys um and Karis LeVert as well assuming LeVert is still there this Brooklyn team could have a major makeover. So, you know, it's hard to really predict who's going to be around them, but we'll assume that Karis LeVert's their third star next year. And they'll, they'll be potent. I'm skeptical that they're going to be great, though. And, I mean, I, I, I've I never been huge on Kyrie even before he got to Boston. I think that he's a very, for someone who is an incredibly efficient shooting scorer, like the numbers he puts up are very efficient. 
He's a very inefficient style of player. He wastes so many dribbles. He constantly tries to, you know, kind of go street ball style and try to take guys one on one in situations where just like playing through the offense would be way smarter. And I don't expect that to change. Even if Steve Nash is his coach, I think that's going to be his style. And he's in a, he's on a, uh, a team where that's going to play to his style even more. So I think that, you know, you can, you can get Kyrie to take the shots that you want him to take. He's just probably going to hit them most of the time. So I do think that Brooklyn is going to be less of a complicated system the way that Toronto and Miami were. And it's really just going to be more of that. They just have the most incredible isolation talent defensive effort. So one of the last questions we'll leave you with before we start to wrap up here, maybe one of the most important questions of the off season is the Tatum extension. Do they get it done? Yeah, it's funny because he, not only would he not talk about it at the end of the season, but he wouldn't even say kind of some of the platitudes that you would expect of, oh, well, you know, I love it here in Boston and I'm sure we'll get it done and stuff like that. He was like very, very noncommittal about something that he's going to sign. There's never a superstar that doesn't sign their max rookie extension. He's going to sign it. So if he doesn't sign it, which there's no reason for him not to because he doesn't make more money by waiting to go to free agency. If he wanted to leave Boston, he would have to skip a year of making like $35 million or whatever it would be to take $9 million. He would have to leave like $20 million plus on the table. And I don't think he's going to be doing that. So, yeah, you know, we've never, especially we've never with, really seen a player do that. Yeah. I mean, especially with like, he's getting more money than he even would after that all NBA nod. So I just hope him and Jalen retire Celtics. Of course, Danny will probably trade them in their twilight years <laughs> to the, for like a million draft picks. But for the foreseeable future, definitely would like to see them stay. Yeah. An important thing that Al was just mentioning for the listeners is that so when Tatum made the All-NBA team this year, he triggered what's called the Rose Rule, which is named after Derek Rose, the great Chicago Bulls guard that tore his knee when he was turning into a superstar or was a superstar he was MVP already um and so that is how max story in the NBA I know really but so how max contracts work in the NBA is when you're a rookie coming off of your first contract which is four years if you're a first round pick like Tatum you get as a maximum up to 25 percent of whatever the salary cap is so the salary cap's around 110 million or so right now so right now you'd be starting you know, around like 27, 28 million or so. But if you qualify for the Rose rule by making an all NBA team before that contract uh, kicks in, you're entitled up to 30% of the cap and you have to negotiate what, what triggers 30% versus 29 versus 28. So most players uh, like Ben Simmons being the perfect comparison, his deal has it so that if he makes third team all NBA, he gets 28%. If he makes second team, 29%. If he makes first team, 30%. There's some guys like Siakam where it's 20, 29% is for first team All-NBA and then 30% is for winning MVP. So Tatum will have to negotiate those extra couple percentage points, but they'll come to an agreement. We haven't seen anyone not come to an agreement over the little you know couple percentage points that make 
you know, make the difference of a couple million dollars here or there. So that, that extension will get done. There's no reason, there's absolutely no reason to expect that that extension will not get done. Well, as long as Tatum's here for a long time, as long as they get it done, I will be happy because, I mean, I know that this has been like the long running joke in Boston for what, like three or four years now, but he's only 22 years old. There is (laughs) so much, there is so much in this kid's future. Also, you know, we need Deuce around for (laughs) for the long haul. You're you're paying for Deuce, you're not paying for Tatum. When Deuce finally got to the bubble, someone posted the Celtic star and his father are in the bubble. (laughs) But Jared, thank you so much for coming on the show, being our guest, for covering the Celtics in the amazing way that you do. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on social media? Obviously, if you're not subscribed to The Athletic, it's worth it so you can read Jared's stuff. But uh, where can people find you on social for your the rest of your content? Yeah, my, my Twitter handle is DeuceFan number zero. Um, <laughs> you can find, no, my handle is Jared Weiss MBA, very original. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, I don't think I have any other social media. I don't have an OnlyFans yet, so you can just find me there. And uh, and yeah, oh, yes, I write and podcast over on The Athletic. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Jared, for waking up at the crack of dawn, the ungodly hour of 9.30 a.m. to come <laughs> on with us. And we certainly will be talking to you soon, probably around the draft. I don't care if you agree or not, but yeah, we're going to have you back. <laughs> I've I've always wanted to be a girl at the game, so I have to I have to oblige. We'll send you a hat. <laughs> <laughs> this has been, been real. <laughs> All right, Jared. All right. Thank you. Wait, seriously, thank you so much. Well, I'm only thinking thank Gabriella. You. Al, whatever to you. <laughs> Ouch. Is she still there? Right. Okay, good. Yes. It's only funny if she's still there. No, but for real, I love you. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you guys later. Okay, bye. Okay, so let's wrap this up because, I mean, (laughs) this episode's like two hours long. (laughs) Yeah, I know. All right. So that was Jared. We love him. We can't wait to have him back on. He's going to be our new, like, resident Celtics guest whenever we want to talk about some breaking news with our beloved green team. Other than that, I feel like we already covered everything that we kind of wanted to talk about, right, Al? Yeah. So stay tuned for our next episode because we have a really exciting guest for you guys. We'll be talking to Martin Perez, starting pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. I am so excited for this. He has become one of my favorite players on the team, and he genuinely loves being here he has been embraced by the fan base and he embraces them right back. Like if you just look at his tweets before every start, you know, he's like, it's Perez day. I'm so excited to get out there and play for you guys. And then no matter what the outcome of the game is, he always thanks the fans after his games. He's a special guy and he's become a really important leader on the team too, which is great. So we'll be talking to him later this week and I'm so freaking pumped for that yeah that'll be a great conversation so much to talk about i mean between the red sox disappointing season him coming in for this his first year in boston and then also his 
role as a starter really getting elevated with Eovaldi's injuries, Eduardo kind of going down at the last minute and losing him, and his future in Boston, right? So um, that's going to be great. Stay tuned. Yeah. And as always, guys, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, interact with us on social media. We're at Girl at the Game on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you're listening to, buy us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash girl at the game and stay tuned for the next episode with special guest Martin Perez. And thank you to today's guest, Jared Weiss. You can check him out on The Athletic covering the Celtics every single day. And yeah, as usual, we have no good closing words for our episodes. One day we'll figure it out. Maybe. (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Uh 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 Uh